Good morning, church. It's good to see you today. It's good to worship with you today. Uh, I don't know if you ever do this. I want to encourage you to do this sometime. When you show up and you are singing the truths of King Jesus and who he is and what he's done to make us brothers and sisters in Christ and uh, one with God the Father, um, making us all one big giant family. I, I just wonder if, I want to encourage you to look around sometime when you're singing. So that, those are my brothers and sisters. They love King Jesus. They're loyal to King Jesus. They're giving their life to King Jesus. I can count on them. They can count on me. It's so easy, you know, when you're tired, you barely made it to church, and, and you're, you're barely dressed, and, but you showed up, and, and you just kind of blow through the service, and, and then you're hungry, and you, you go to lunch. I want to encourage you to take time and, and notice your brothers and sisters and encourage them. Look for somebody uh, to pray for, somebody to pray with, and I'm telling you, it changes, it changes everything about the gathering of, of, of the saints. And uh, I was just able to do that again uh, this morning, and I want to tell you that I, I tell you at the end of every service, um, and I hope it doesn't get old, I, I always dismiss by saying I love you all, and I really do. That's not just something I say to sound like a nice guy. I, I, I love our church family. Now, if you're new here, uh, it may be difficult uh, to break into a, a close-knit uh, group. At least that's what you might be uh, thinking. Uh, my desire is that you feel welcome here, that you feel like you're a part of the family here. Uh, we want you to feel like you belong. And if you need anything and we can serve you in any way, you let us know. That's why we're here. Now, to bring you up to speed... Um, we normally go through books of the Bible, Old and New Testament, every now and then between uh, uh, those types of series, we'll have a church life series. And a church life series is a group of, of sermons uh, focused around a particular topic or issue that the pastors believe would be timely for us as a church. And lately we've been talking about loving our neighbors. Now for a healthy church, we want to love God, love each other, love our neighbors. And it's really easy to kind of get stuck um, in, in a cycle of loving God, which is great, and loving each other, which is great, but to forget to love our neighbors. And that was not a suggestion from King Jesus. That was a command. That's something he's called us to do. And so we wanted to spend a few weeks exhorting each other, encouraging each other to not just think happy thoughts, pleasant thoughts about your neighbors, but to actually love them. Not just to have warm feelings about your, your neighbors, but to reach out to them and to engage them, uh, to befriend them, to share them the love and the truth and the grace of God. When Tom's praying, God, give us opportunities to connect with our neighbors. It's so we can share the love and the truth of God with them so that we can be involved in God's advancement of, of his kingdom. So we've been talking about that lately. Now, this brings us to an interesting topic. It's going to get really uh, both incredibly practical, uh, but then also, I think, very theological. And, and uh, what we want to talk about this morning is what role... Our possessions, uh, our valuables, our money play 
in obeying God's command to love our neighbors. For better or worse, money plays a major role in society and often it's worse, amen? So many people in our city and maybe some of you are just struggling financially. Rent has skyrocketed. Taxes in San Diego are absolutely insane. Business practices are often characterized by by greed and manipulation. I know a young couple uh, with no kids paying $600 a month in health insurance, and that's with the Affordable Care Act. Homelessness is greater in our state than any other. And a 1,500-square-foot house in Old Escondido built in 1953 with no renovations will cost you $570,000. That's crazy. Now, there's more I could say about all that, but I'll stop there because now I'm depressed. So many people are struggling. You are struggling. Many of you are struggling. Most of your neighbors are are struggling. So the question is, does King Jesus care? Does King Jesus care about all that? Does he care about our city? I mean, how can our city experience the life-giving, generous love of God in a world that is cursed with so much self-centeredness in a dog-eat-dog world? Where, where everybody has a scarcity mindset, there's not enough, and so I need to protect myself, and then generosity is out the window. What, what role does money play in, in his kingdom? And how is it different the way uh, the, the world values money and uses money? What difference can it make? How can God use our resources to renew and bless our city. Now here's the deal. Here's what I know. I know I know most people when they hear a pastor talk about money, they freak out. And the reason they freak out is cuz there's no shortage of of greedy preachers. You know, there you know, you hear songs like from bands like Cage the Elephant singing about the preacher man who stuffs his bank account with righteous dollars, righteous dollar bills. I, I totally get it. That's exactly what, why we need to hear what Jesus has to say about it, right? If we never address this, this issue of money, our understanding of Jesus would be limited. Our understanding of his kingdom would be limited. Our understanding of how we advance his kingdom and engage his kingdom would be totally limited. And the greedy televangelists would have the, the last twisted word. We're not going to let that happen. Jesus did a lot of teaching about money. You read the Gospels, you see he's talking about money a lot. Why is that? It's not like people were tempted to abuse credit cards or needed help balancing their checkbook. They weren't getting sucked into online gambling or stressing over stock options. I mean, it was a much simpler time back then. So why did Jesus teach so much about money? Well, Jesus knows in our world that our entire life on this planet from our first days to our last, is organized, organized around the use of money in one way or another. I want you to imagine something. You know, we're, we read the scriptures. 
we read what Jesus tells us about his kingdom, we get a glimpse of the fulfillment of that, that kingdom with the great hope that we see in the book of Revelation, that Jesus is in the process of creating a new heavens and a new earth to renew everything to completion, that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. That means one day, all of the self-centered greediness, all the scarcity mindset, looking out for yourself will be gone and be completely replaced with sacrificial generosity. Can you imagine what our world would look like if all of the greediness was replaced, all the fear and the hoarding was, was, was replaced with sacrificial generosity? Can you imagine what that would look like? Jesus wants to give us a vision for that. That's what he has in mind for, for his people. And so I want, I want us to, to realize that, that, man, there is so much teaching that Jesus uh, provides. I, I think so often we find some of these things and we think it's just um, financial tips and we treat it as financial tips and, and, and tricks uh, for your you know, budgeting habits or something like that. But this is a kingdom issue. It's a kingdom issue. Whether, whether we're rich or poor, a TV evangelist or an atheist or an agnostic or a Christian, uh, money and possessions, they're they are always competing for the throne of our heart and lives. That's, that's just the way it is, and Jesus knew that. Both the irreligious and the religious often have self-serving ideas about money. And so we need to look at the big picture. And one helpful way is to look at issues like money from the perspective of, of three great historic events, creation, the fall, and redemption. And, and it might seem a little heady at first, but you'll get it and you'll see how down to earth it really can be. So let's see what Jesus says from those three perspectives. It might be a little bit easier for you to follow along if you're using the outline in your bulletin. And so we are going to look at money in light of creation. So the first section there is money and creation. And so, so what is your role regarding money in light of creation. Well, Jesus says, your role is a manager. You are a manager. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a parable about a rich man who, who had a manager, a steward. And this steward, this manager, was accused of, of wasting the master's possession. And so the master calls him in and says, you got to give an account because you're not going to be a steward anymore. You're messing things up. Now, here's the thing. I don't expect non-Christians to have the same view, but for Christians, being a manager means that God owns everything. The Christian paradigm, the Christian worldview, the Christian um, uh, perspective, the biblical scriptural perspective is that God owns absolutely everything. David sees this uh, when he says in, in 1 Chronicles, Lord, everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Wealth and honor come from you. Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. Now, like anybody else, it's easy for, for me to think, you know what? My paycheck is my money. I worked hard for it. 
I have a right to use it. However, I want, right? But then I have to ask myself, who gave me the ability to earn, right? Who gave me the opportunity to earn? That's from God. Anything I have, God entrusted it to me to, to manage. And so in light of creation, he created you to be a manager of his resources for his purposes. It all belongs to, it all belongs to him. He created you to manage his creation. Imagine going into your bank on payday with your paycheck and you hand your paycheck to the bank teller to deposit your check. And the bank teller looks at your check and says, all right, now I can get the new iPhone 11 Pro with the triple camera and the Super Retina XDR display. You'd be thinking, um, excuse me, that is not your money. You're just managing for that, that, that money for me while it's here in the bank. Well, guess what? It's the same for us, right? It all belongs to God. We are managers. So if a manager is your role, then what is your goal? The goal is to make friends for King Jesus. Let me explain what I mean. A manager is to use what is entrusted to him in the same way the master would. Stockbrokers, for example, are managers. The money doesn't belong to the stockbrokers. Their goal should be to use it the way their client would use it. And so the question we got to ask is, how does God want us to use his money, right? In Jesus' parable about this rich man and the manager, Jesus says, the manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to, to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So the manager called in each of his master's debtors. And if you know the story, you remember what he did? He told each debtor that their debt was just slashed. I mean, he reduces all of the debts to his master. And you would think that the, manager, or the, the master would just blow up, but the master praises the manager. Why? Because the master in the parable points to a greater master. Let me show you. Jesus concludes the parable by saying, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. That seems a little confusing, right? Well, let me just reassure you that he is not saying to give so that you can buy your way into heaven. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is, Jesus is saying make eternal friends. But it's not that we're buying friends with money. We are serving them with what we have, whether it's a lot or whether it's a little. It is a down-to-earth way that you can love your neighbors as God's representative. You treat them as friends. 
And then, someday, some of them will welcome you into eternal dwellings with them and Jesus. It has kingdom purposes. Now, this raises a practical question. In my mind, maybe it does for you, too. And the question is, so how much should I give? In Luke chapter eleven forty-two, 42, Jesus gives us a basic guideline. He says, what sorrow awaits you Pharisees? If you don't know what, who Pharisees are, in that day, they um, came to be known as the self-righteous religious leaders. And, and Jesus says, what sorrow awaits you Pharisees? For you are careful to tithe or give a tenth, even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore justice and you ignore the love of God, you should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. And so what is your action? And as a manager, our action is to give a tithe. That's the basic guideline, 10%. However... Being legalistic about that means that you don't have the heart that Jesus wants you to have. And many aren't in a financial place yet to achieve that kind of a percentage. You know, now, Jesus says that the Pharisees were right in giving a tithe, but they were wrong in neglecting justice. They were wrong in neglecting love. They gave for selfish reasons. I mean, <laughs> you have to be really religiously self-righteous and religiously self-interested to give for selfish reasons, but it happens easier than you may think. You know, they gave for selfish reasons for, for the same reason most people refuse to give if they can. They were committing to themselves first and foremost. They did not give out of love for God and for their neighbors. Now, I need to make a side note here. I will not tell you, behold, the Bible says your 10% and your additional offerings must go to advance the kingdom of Infusion Church. Now, we are created to be preoccupied with advancing the kingdom of God. This includes controlling our spending to increase our generosity to others. And this kind of heart is cultivated in a church-like infusion that loves our messed up world simply because God does. And how much more effective are we if we're working together as a church family? Now, some of you, many of you, my guess is most of you are not currently in a position to give a tithe. Maybe you have debts to pay. And so what do you do? Well, Jesus wants your debt to be eliminated so that you can figure out ways to live more and more generously for, for God and, and others. Or maybe he's um, encouraging you to think, how to depend on him to be generous for others. And, and maybe he's cultivating a, a create, creativity. And, and if you are struggling financially, let us know. We want to see if there's anything that we can do to help. That's why we're talking about this, so that we can be generous and help each other out. We 
we're created for this. So from the perspective of creation, our role, managers. Our goal, make friends for King Jesus. Our action, give a tithe. Now, here's the deal. Even if we have the resources, we fail in this, don't we? So the question is, why is that? Well, because of the fall. The fall into sin that that, that cursed the world and, and us. And under the curse, we fell into a totally different role. So that brings us to our second point, money and sin. And Jesus says that because of sin, it made you a slave. Because of sin, we give money power to enslave us. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And one of the best places you can see this is in Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 16, and Jesus told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be, Jesus says, with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich towards God. See, when we become slaves to money, it's because we're deceived into thinking that it can provide us with what only God can give us. Looking to money or looking to the things that money can buy as a main source of happiness is what the Bible calls idolatry, and it kills your generosity. We make it our God. There's an old Trent Reznor song, um, and then uh, he sings, God money, God money, I'll do anything for you. God money, just tell me what you want me to do. Bow down before the one you serve. You're going to get what you deserve. Anyone, Anyone here heard that song before? Yeah, a couple of you. That one's going to be stuck in your head the rest of the day. You're welcome. He drives home a a point. He's not a Christian or anything like that I know of. But he understands how it can enslave us. We could take something good. Money's not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. So when we turn something good into an idol. So from the perspective of the fall and sin... If a slave is your role, then what is your goal? Our goal, when you're enslaved, the number one thing that you're preoccupied with, the number one thing that you need is to be liberated, right? You need freedom. The goal is freedom from the bondage of money. 
I'm, let me tell you something. Every single one of us is enslaved by money and possessions to some extent, some less than others, some more than others. And, and, and here's, here's, here's what you can do if you just had some self-awareness or prayed for some more self-awareness. We can spend our money, the way that we spend our money can point to our idols, the rich man in the parable could not bring himself to give. So that, at that point, something good became an idol. Uh, the diagnostic there is he couldn't bring himself to, to give. It was easier to buy larger barns to store his grain. Why? It, it served his security idol and his comfort idol. He said, he said, I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. This is his security idol. Then he goes on to say, take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. This is his comfort idol. Now, again, those things, security and, and you know, uh, uh, eat, drink, be merry, those aren't bad things. But you know it's idolatry because it, it kept him from being generous. He's in bondage to those idols, and he doesn't even know it. If he were free from the bondage of, of money, he would be thinking, you know, money and bigger barns and lots of grain, they can't give me true security. They can't give me true comfort. Only God can do that. So I'm going to trust him and use the wealth to serve God and to love my neighbors. That's God's design. And I tell you what, this reminds me to check my heart. I need to ask myself, and I want to encourage you to do the, the, the same thing, okay? I need to ask myself, what is it that is easy for me to spend on? You know, that, that might give you a clue. And for me personally, I can easily spend uh, money on comfort, especially when life kind of drags you through the gutter, you know? Um, it's real easy for me. Spend. Is there anything wrong with comfort? Nope. But why do I find it way easier to spend on my own comfort than on giving and being generous to comfort others? Comfort can easily become an enslaving idol. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're like me. I don't know. Maybe for others of you, it's, it's acceptance. You leverage money for acceptance or you leverage money for respect or you leverage money for your security. Is there anything wrong with acceptance and respect and security? No. In and of themselves, they're not wrong. The question is, it, that you need to wrestle with is, is it that much easier for me to spend on myself than to, to give and be generous to others? When you're enslaved, your only hope for freedom it's King Jesus. That's it. That's your only hope. Our enslavement leads us to Christ for freedom. And as we give, not legalistically, because that's just more slavery, as we give out of gratitude for his grace, we are saying that money and the things that money buys, buys they are not my masters. Only in Christ do I have true comfort? Only in Christ do I have true acceptance. Only in Christ do I have respect and security that matter. I mean, and, and, and only in Christ do I have God himself, and he is more than enough. So this gives us the joy and the freedom to take action 
And what is it? Next, if you're taking notes, the action is this. Live simply and give the excess. Live simply and give the excess. From the perspective of creation, the rich man should give a tenth. From the perspective of sin, as a slave that has been liberated, we should live to give, right? Man, let me tell you something. I've told you this. I'll keep telling you this. I know single moms who are flat broke. They're some of the most generous people I've ever met in my life. I, and one story that stands out to me was uh, when I was doing inner city ministry in National City. We met in a school that we fixed up, and then they tripled, they tripled our rent, and so we couldn't afford it anymore. And so we decided to meet on Sunday mornings in the park across the street. We told everybody to bring a chair and food to share. We'd circle up. We'd break bread together. That's Christianese for we ate. And then the homeless would hang out with us, and there was more than enough for everybody. And, and, and uh, there was this one uh, single mom. She had four kids. Um, uh, dad bolted on her, bounced, went to another state, said that God told him to leave or whatever. So she was on her own, but she had a heart for the homeless. And uh, she asked if she could have some time during her little gathering to stand up and make an announcement that, that she wants to put together Thanksgiving dinner for, for the homeless. She had no money, but she was going to trust God to be generous. And so we gave her an opportunity to tell our group, you know, chip in if you want to help her out with this. And before she was done in, in, with, with her announcement, there was a somewhat inebriated homeless guy leaning against the tree who kind of stumbled over next to her, right in the middle of her announcement, totally interrupts her, reaches into his pocket, pulls out some change in the pocket lint and maybe a gum wrapper or something, puts it in her hand and says, you know, that's not much, but it's all I have and I hope it'll help. And that, that just blew me away. I mean, it would have been genius if I would have thought of that sooner and paid that guy to do that. It would be like a really good illustration, right? But it just happened on its own. And that just stuck with me forever. He had nothing. But he had a generous heart. This mom had nothing. And somebody with less helped her <laughs> feed the homeless. I mean, it's just amazing to me. I'm really encouraged by the people in our church who are struggling, but yet they're still so generous. And yet God provides like thousands of pounds of food, you know, every single week to I mean, people show up and they're, they're blessed and they're meeting the, 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 the food distribution team and building relationships with them. That creates an environment where they can have spiritual conversations and pray with and, and for each other. I mean, man, it's beautiful. We don't just talk about loving our neighbors. God wants us to live it out, right? So, I also know successful, incredibly successful people in business who chose to limit their standard of living, to live modestly, and give the excess to their church and their neighbors and to, to bless them. I mean, it was actually over 50% what they gave away. 
All of them. They were just constrained and compelled by the love of Christ to act as a friend on behalf of God, as God's representatives, as representatives of his kingdom. This is what life should look like in his kingdom. Not just in the church walls, but out there in the real world. And it's all his. So how about you? It's going to be different for everybody. <laughs> I mean, if, it, if you live in San Diego, it's going to take most of your income just to stay here, right? And what do you do if your income increases? I mean, you should... I mean, this would compel us to wrestle with, you know, how and what ways should we increase our standard of living or how should we limit it? What should we do? God, what do you want me to do with your money? But thinking through that comes from remembering that you've been set free. And so now you look for creative ways to live simply and to love others through your generosity. You have been liberated to help liberate others. From the perspective of the fall, our role, slaves. Our goal, freedom from the bondage of, of money. Our action, live simply, give the excess. Now our last section. We're going to look at money and redemption. Redemption gives us a new role. Jesus says... You are God's adopted child. That is who you are. You are the son of the one who owns everything. That is who you are. And the highest blessing of redemption is your adoption into the family of God. To be his son, to be his daughter. For God the Father to be your heavenly perfect father. The Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians, he says that you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus and heirs according to the promised. Redemption means that we are all co-heirs with Christ. All of God's adopted kids share in all of the riches of our Heavenly Father and have an equal inheritance beyond your wildest dreams. We don't have to have a scarcity mindset and grasp and hoard. You are a child of the one who owns everything. So, from the perspective of redemption... If an adopted child of God is your role, then what's your goal? Well, the goal is to reflect the character of your heavenly Father. More specifically, the goal is to show the grace of God. Show the grace of God. I mean, if you know God's grace, you will show God's grace. You just will. If you don't show God's grace, it just means you don't really know God's grace. One of the best places to see this is in Luke chapter 7. Jesus is at dinner, a dinner party at, at the home of a Pharisee, and his name is Simon. And they're all reclining around the table for dinner when a woman who had fallen into a life of prostitution shows up. 
And she quietly walks toward Jesus holding an alabaster bar of extremely expensive perfume. She wants to anoint his feet. And it was a way of of her showing deep gratitude for the grace that he had shown her, grace that she never experienced anywhere else. And as soon as she gets to Jesus, she becomes overwhelmed with emotion and just breaks down in tears on the floor. And her tears fall on Jesus' feet. And so she, she wipes his feet with with her hair, and kisses his feet. And then she breaks open the vial of this expensive perfume and pours it all out on his feet. This was an insanely expensive gesture. And more than that, this affected her livelihood her financial security. She used that perfume to make herself more attractive and desirable, to get more work. It was the only power she had and and the only way she knew how to make it in life up to this point. I mean, she breaks it open and she pours it all out on Jesus' feet. Verse 39. When the Pharisee Simon, who had invited Jesus, saw this, He said to himself, if this man, Jesus, were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And then Jesus turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Now, now what's the difference? What's the difference between this woman, this outcast, who really was, she had no security really whatsoever, and, and this religious leader who had plenty of money to throw a party for everybody. What what was the difference? What was the difference between Simon's lack of giving and this woman's radical, generous giving? Well, Jesus tells us. I mean, he basically says, Simon, her giving shows that she knows God's grace. Your lack of giving shows that you don't. That stings a little bit. And I think it's important for us to ask ourselves, do we give like the woman or do we give like Simon? I mean, how do we respond to the poor? Do we struggle with who deserves what? If we do, we don't understand God's grace. God's grace is always to those who are completely undeserving. People like me. It's a whole point of grace. It's for people who don't deserve it. And let me tell you something. Maybe you're afraid to give because they're going to take your generosity and your grace for granted. Guess what? We all do that. We all do that, and yet God has not stopped being generous to us. I mean, it is amazing how it 
when you see God's grace towards you and your need for it and his generosity towards you, it just changes the way that you see people. It totally changes the way that you see your neighbors. It totally changes uh, your priorities in, in figuring out how you are going to love your neighbors as God's representative and a representative of his kingdom. That's what grace is all about, and that's what the cross is all about. Even though we are undeserving sinners, I mean, he died for us. He paid our debt. He saved us from eternal punishment. He gave us his righteousness. He freed us from slavery to sin and made us adopted children of God the Father. And we are now co-heirs with King Jesus. This is the gospel, and this changes everything. If you know God's grace, you will show God's grace. And you will love your neighbors. So what action? We'll close with this. What action can you take to show God's grace? Simply put, give sacrificially. Add a response to the sacrifice God made for you. Now, do you, do you see the progression here? I mean, from giving a tithe uh, to, to giving the excess to giving even more sacrificially. To the extent that you see how sacrificially generous God was to redeem you, you will be sacrificially generous to advance his redemption, his redemptive purposes. Now listen, I, I know, I mean, you live in this world, everybody, most people by far, uh, there are times when you find yourself in a season where you don't have anything extra. But my point is, it's not primarily about money. It's about being sacrificially generous with whatever resources God has given to you. And God uses those lean times to grow us in, in being creatively sacrificial with what we do have. See, if our goal is to give to show God's grace, then it will involve sacrifice. And we see God's grace when we see him giving up all of his riches, coming to earth, living as a poor man, giving up his life on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin. I mean, this is God's grace, and he did it for you. That's the heart of this message here. And I'll close with one of the greatest verses on giving in the whole scripture. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, where the Apostle Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. You know the word grace is translated often as gift? For you know the gift of our Lord Jesus Jesus is the ultimate gift. There is not a greater treasure than him. And we receive him 
by God's grace and grace alone. To the extent that you know God's grace, you will show God's grace through sacrificial generosity. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads with me?